With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We're fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Well, we are officially in the midst of summer, and you know what that means, April. I do. For me, that means it's beach season. Yep, or pool, depending where you live. And you, April, have certainly been living it up at Fire Island this summer. I'm a bit jealous. Yes, this is definitely true. I am extremely fortunate to have friends who own beach houses in Fire Island. I mean, my burden this summer is that I have to hang out with, like, gorgeous gay men who are hilarious and amazing chefs. You know, I I am so fortunate that they ask me and invite me to be their playmate all summer long. (laughs) Um, But what about you? Uh, What's up with your tan? How's that coming along? Oh, April, I have yet to hit the water in any shape or form. Uh, Part work-related and part I don't want to put on a swimsuit related. (laughs) I identify with that. Absolutely. And I also think it's safe to say that besides me, you are not alone in that at all. Um, You know, the swimsuit is arguably the single most polarizing piece of clothing in a woman's wardrobe now that we no longer wear corsets. Um, You know, some women don't even own swimsuits. Yeah. And I'm sure there are plenty of men out there who have similar feelings about this garment. I personally have had many periods where swimsuits were simply banished from my closet. No, thank you. I am not doing that to myself this year. Yeah, it's it's definitely a complicated love-hate relationship. I mean, really what it all boils down to is like, how are we feeling about our own bodies at any given moment? Yeah, and for at least the last century, the body-bearing swimsuit has been intimately tied to these contemporary beauty standards and ideals. In fact, it could be argued that the swimsuited body stripped of all layers and facades, represents the purest form of the fashionable ideal. So for some time, women and men have been spoon-fed this idea that only a certain body type looks good in a swimsuit and that, as you just mentioned, still very much holds true today. Yeah, and it isn't just the wearer who has struggled with this inherent revealing nature of the swimsuit, because since swimming became a very popular leisure time activity in the 19th century, The swimsuit has been at the center of different periods of controversy. Its very existence is at odds with the social and moral imperatives of certain people at any given period. And these people, they tend to be very, very vocal about this. (laughs) This is very true. I have read many uh, account um, and many opinions uh, preparing for this episode. But one source I read was especially critical and quite angry, frankly. And it said they called the bathing suit, quote, the most hedonistic idol to ever oppose the church and enslave the world in sensual bondage. It has irreversibly changed the entire moral and ethical topography of modern civilization. So in other words, April, the swimsuit is the root of all the world's evil. Um, okay, I I like how this person is giving a lot of credit to um, a couple pieces of cloth. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm going to go on the record here and say, you know, what women's bodies look like is not the problem here, sir. You know, if you're attracted to a woman in a way that you feel is inappropriate with your system of beliefs, this is not her fault. This is not her fault of all. It's not the fault of her clothing that she chooses to dress her body in. You know, these are your personal feelings. <laughs> so be responsible for your feelings and and or their conflict. Don't put it on women's bodies. Yeah, well, I think as we know, um, that is easier said than done for men throughout history. But um, true. you actually might be surprised <laughs> to hear that this was written in 2003. Three. What? So, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was like I mean, a piece of 19th century, like, yeah, prognostication. It's an, yeah, it's an entire book about it. But oh, um, right. anyways, we're all entitled to our opinions. All I'm going to say here is that this just reinforces the fact that a swimsuit is not just a swimsuit. Yeah. You know, yet another fantastic example of proving that the clothing that you and I, Cass, or all of our listeners wear, it can be really charged with like a multitude of meetings or, or symbolisms. And whether we like it or not, we exist in a culture where a swimsuit is not simply 
these pieces of cloth. It, it's loaded with meaning that speaks to matters of sex and in turn morality. So on that note, Cass, when and where are we going to start this history of this very important piece of the modern wardrobe? Well, April, dress detective hats on. Okay. We keep joking that we're going to make these, but I really think that we should. And yes. by the way, um, coming soon, listeners, we will have dressed merchandise. So Ooh, that's when, true. when that is available, we will let you know. Absolutely. Okay. But enough about merchandise. Sorry, Cass. Where were we headed exactly? Well, actually, April, we are headed back to ancient Greco-Roman times. Beginning in the 1920s, excavations of the 4th century Villa Romana di Casale in Sicily revealed an incredibly rich and valuable collection of Roman mosaics. So these excavations lasted decades, and in the late 1950s, a mosaic on the floor of a room now known as the Chamber of the Ten Maidens was revealed. So how did it get its name, you ask? Well, there are 10 women depicted in the mosaic, and eight of them are wearing bikinis. Well, not exactly bikinis, but they are wearing two-piece garments that are very similar to bikinis. They have names, mammalarium, stropharium. We're not going to get all geeky about it, but um, <laughs> these women were not actually swimming, though, in these ensembles. Instead, they were really actively engaged in different types of sports and exercise, which include weightlifting, running, and they were doing it in these body-bearing ensembles. And, mm -hmm. you know, I don't think anybody who has looked into the history of clothing in ancient Greece and Rome, they're not going to um, accuse them of being modest, I'll just say. No. The body was a big deal. Yeah. The body, and specifically the athletic body, was very much a celebrated aspect of these cultures. And this mosaic provides a quite early example of something we are all familiar with today, which is the relationship between exercise and body-bearing garments. But in the 4th century, that's where we are now, this didn't exactly apply to swimming specifically, right? We're not talking about swimwear specifically. No, not yet. Um, although people surely enjoyed a swim during this period, they likely would have done it in the nude. Um, to really get to the origin story of the modern day swimsuit, we have to jump forward now 1,400 years in history. That's a little bit of a leap, but let's do it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, with the fall of the Roman Empire in the 5th century, there came this very lengthy period during which morality and modesty became inextricably linked. So this was due to the increasing influence of Christianity. So you can say hasta la vista to depictions of half-naked athletic women. That's going bye-bye for over 8,000 years. Yeah, and this is a very extended period of time. We have the Middle Ages, then we have the Renaissance, then we have the 17th and 18th century. I'm just going to say that bathing in general was not exactly a high priority on people's lists of things no, to do during these eras. <laughs> you know, people did absolutely bathe, um, but a lot of times it was more for medicinal or healing purposes. Um, and men and women would have done this separately in private. And they did this either nude or certain, during certain periods, you were still required to, or, or not required, but you were expected to still wear your undergarments while you bathed. Yeah. And again, this is not to say that people were not enjoying a dip in the lake or ocean, but it was not yet the immensely popular pastime that it would become in the 19th and 20th centuries. These are periods when men, women, and children in Europe, Australia, America, they start heading to the beaches and they do, they're doing it in droves. So with this many people hitting the beach together, they were all faced with one dilemma. And that was what, what to, wear? to wear. What do you wear to the beach? <laughs> I, I, I still struggle with this frequently. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but once they figured that out, April, when and how to wear it. A respectable woman in the 19th century would never arrive to the beach in her bathing costume, also referred to as a bathing suit or a bathing dress. The term swimsuit was not introduced into the vernacular until the 20th century. In 1840, Louisa Stewart Costello published her book called A Summer Amongst the Bocage and the Vines. And in this book, she relates her shock at the swimming customs of French people in the coastal town of Havre. This is what she said. She writes, quote, You enter a canvas box in undress, putting on, as a bathing costume, a blouse, pantaloons, an oilskin cap, 
and thus being equipped as is for exhibition on a tightrope with the addition of a pair of sabots. Um, sabots mean kind of like little booties to preserve the feet. You follow the path, followed by a man also in a bathing dress. Arrived at the edge of the water, you present your hand to your companion and enter the wide expanse together. This lasts as long as you please. And then you return to your canvas box in your wet garments. And then she goes on to say, but I remonstrated to the woman who kept the rooms all the world can see. Mais certainement, she replied, let's just say that the French will remain at the forefront of this revealing bathing suit game for the next hundred years. It sounds like Louisa was probably more accustomed and more comfortable with the bathing machine. Okay. I am only minorly obsessed with these, so you are going to have to tell us <laughs> all about them. I think it's like one of the strangest fashion history facts ever. Yeah, it's quite bizarre. So beach or bathing machines were these little wooden houses that could be rented on the beach in, say, England, into which a woman would enter fully clothed, and then she would emerge in her bathing costume, but only after her hut, wait for it, had been pulled into the sea by horses. This is true. <laughs> you really cannot make this stuff up. And there are so many photos of this. And also sometimes even in like illustrations and fashion plates um, that are depicting fashionable beachwear, you see them in the background. So this is a real thing. Yeah. And don't worry, we will post all of them as many as we can on um, Instagram because this is something you definitely, I feel like, have to see to believe so once the woman was pulled into the ocean, she could then enjoy her swim in relative privacy, I guess, far from the prying gaze of anyone on the beach. And after her swim was over, she would simply get back into the hut, be pulled back into shore, only departing the hut only after she was dressed, her respectability fully intact. This was not simple. <laughs> and But then again, you know, with this prescribed bathing costume and all the bits and pieces of it of the time, I mean, how how could it any of this be simple? Um, Louisa in her, in her writings described it a bit for us, but for the better part of the 19th century, women, when they swam, were covered from neck to foot with long sleeved belted dresses worn over a pair of pants that extended to the ankle. And some women wore this over their standard undergarments of the time, meaning a chemise and, and sometimes even a corset. Yeah, and that's not even the craziest part to me. I mean, swimming with a corset, bizarre. But while many of these garments were made of cotton, even more were made of wool. So this fabric was chosen for its water-resistant properties. Can we just talk about how uncomfortable this sounds for a minute? I, I don't think I am going to ever complain about a bathing suit again. Yeah, when I first talk about this in class with my students say nobody believes that it's actually true <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes when we go to the museum and look at extant garments we pull out the wool bathing suits and they're like really what I mean wet itchy <laughs> reportedly heavy yeah reported these <laughs> these wool bathing ensembles you know could weigh up to 30 pounds when they were wet so we're not exactly talking about like functional garments um, there was this one source in 1876 that wrote, quote, who does not remember the sensation of donning the horribly gritty salted piece of serge, which clings to every limb and drapes the form funerally? <laughs> what an insult to a garment to call that wet, clinging, strangling horror a dress. <laughs> that does not sound pleasant. It does not at all. So by the 1870s, this so-called dress had evolved well, it evolved a little bit. That is to say that the sleeves and the pants were shortened. But don't get too excited because that just meant that women were now expected to add yet another layer, stockings, to their already elaborate getup. So although I did read that Americans held on to this tradition much longer than their European counterparts, that's probably not surprising. Yeah. By the 1870s, though, the bathing suit was starting to begin recognized as an integral component of a woman's wardrobe. Uh, there's a magazine called the Deborah's Family Magazine, and they wrote in 1879, quote, ladies bathe of late years much more than formerly, and a bathing suit is therefore an essential requisite of a summer outfit for the seaside. Um, Demers was actually a very, very popular American magazine of this time period. Um, in addition to fashion plates that it frequently published, it also sold patterns. 
So that's very interesting. You could you could actually have a pattern to create the latest style of bathing suits. Um, and during this time, bathing suits could vary in color and cut and silhouette, um, but they all kind of subscribed to this common design elements, which included nautical themes. Um, so the color combinations were frequently red, white, navy, white, but casts. We have not yet spoken about our male counterparts. They were absolutely swimming as well. What were they wearing? Yes, they were. And they loved horizontal stripes, which I find very interesting. So men's early bathing suits were similarly long-sleeved and woolen. But by the 1870s, the sleeves had been shortened and the garment resembles a one-piece like short-sleeved leotard that extends to the knees. So it's by no coincidence that Jules Leotard, the man responsible for lending his name to this similar garment that he made famous, was a contemporary of this period. So if you haven't already listened, he was a subject of a recent dressed episode. So check it out. Yes, do so. During the 19th century, the bathing suit didn't really evolve that much. Um, and that had a lot to do with the fact that we alluded to earlier, which was all of this societal anxiety about modesty and moral correctness. By the end of the 19th century, public swimming had become incredibly popular, so much so that some governments debated whether swimming in public should be banned altogether, <laughs> which this seems a little crazy. <laughs> um, but, but really, it was that threatening to society's ideas about what was and what was not appropriate conduct between men and women. And there was a lot of ideas about that. I came across the notations of one such debate from 1893 when the New South Wales Parliament in Australia debated regulating not only public bathing, but dress. So one politician is arguing in favor of um, public sea bathing. He says public sea bathing is one of the best, most healthful and most innocent things that mankind or womankind can indulge in. We go to the theater and see men and women wearing hardly any costume at all. Why are there not regulations compelling these people to be dressed from the neck to knee? I give my honorable friend credit for a desire to preserve public decency, and we should ensure a certain amount of propriety in regard to bathing dresses. But it is absurd to ask us to pass a law prescribing that people should bathe in dresses extending from the neck to the knee. Yeah. And his friend's response was this. His friend responded, quote, but should women be subject to the annoyance when traveling along a public road of seeing a number of persons dressed in a manner which does not guarantee decency? I mean, the shame, right? You know, somebody's <laughs> traveling along in their carriage and they happen to see people swimming. <laughs> who, who do you think won this debate, Cass? <laughs> and my vote is for the man who valued the beauty and innocence of swimming. I would agree with you, but um, it seems that we would have been in the minority because Shocking. this bill <laughs> passed and those very conservative versions of men's and women's bathing suits remained the standard in Australia for swimwear until the 19-teens. And all over the world, actually. If people were even allowed to swim at all, because in Sydney, Australia, for instance, public swimming was banned from the 1830s to 1903. And in 1907, public protests erupted in challenge of the government regulations that required men and women to wear a skirt to preserve their modesty. People were over it. Yeah, and this was not an uncommon tale. Uh, there are similar stories around the world. 1907 just also happens to be the year that a certain pioneering Australian woman swimmer made the history books because she dared to don a men's-style bathing suit on the beaches of Boston. And we're going to talk more about her right after a short word from our sponsors. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest 
to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Welcome back. So despite the restrictions on public swimming in Australia, I was really surprised to learn that women's competitive swimming events existed there since at least the 1870s, which is really cool. So it makes perfect sense to me that these pioneering women athletes were responsible for laying the foundations of the modern bathing suit. Out of necessity, these competitive swimmers adopted the one-piece knit bathing suit worn by their male peers. I mean... Can you really imagine trying to swim at top speeds wearing a 30-pound wet wool dress and <laughs> pantaloons? Uh, no. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it would have been impossible. It was absolutely necessary to shed the layers, but it was entirely taboo, of course. These figure-hugging garments left little to the imagination. So naturally, when the Australian swimmer Annette Kellerman stepped out in her onesie on a Boston, Massachusetts beach in 1907, well, she was arrested on charges of indecency. April, I would like to please add Annette to the list of badass ladies from history. Absolutely. This list is getting long, <laughs> but we like that. <laughs> And also the pioneering woman athlete list, really, um, you and I uh, have had side notes about how at some point we will do some episodes about like really badass female sportswomen, tennis players, golf, um, all the mm -hmm. aviatrixes who were mm -hmm. very fashionable. So we will get to that. Um, but Kellerman, she was a trailblazer in more ways than just one. She was instrumental in validating the competitive sport of swimming for women. And as a decorated swimmer, she held a number of world records, including the mile and also the longest breath held underwater. And that time, that would be a staggering three minutes and 27 seconds. That is incredible. I can't do any. Yeah, <laughs> that's not happening for me. <laughs> Same. Yeah. Her ambitions and talents, though, they did not stop with swimming. That last piece of information you just mentioned is actually very helpful in explaining how she was able to successfully translate her athleticism into an internationally celebrated vaudeville act, during which she performed these enchanting underwater ballets in addition to death-defying high dives. And if, like myself, you're trying to imagine what an underwater ballet might look like, you are in luck because starting in 1909, Annette took her talents to the silver screen. And there is a lot of surviving footage from Annette's numerous films that you can find on YouTube. Yeah, YouTube. It's of, yeah. It's a bit of a rabbit hole to go down, but it's a really fun one. So um, there's an underwater dance sequence on there from 1924, her film Venus of the South Seas. But my personal favorite is Neptune's Daughter, in which she plays a mermaid, and it is absolute magic. And it's actually pretty incredible what they can do with film in the 1910s already. Awesome. Okay, I haven't checked this out yet, but uh, I will. I will. Um, so this latter film that you're referencing 
Um, I do know, however, that this is the film that took Annette to actually international stardom. It cost about $50,000 to produce at the time, but it brought in $1 million. Uh, That's $1 million in 1914 dollars. So after this huge success, two years later, Annette became the first major star to appear nude when she starred in a film entitled A Daughter of the Gods. Although, let's just say this, her incredibly long hair is very strategically placed to cover all the little bits of her body that might be offensive to some. Um, so apparently, though, she I, I read somewhere else that there's a scene where she dives off a pier and it's not covered. So this is very <laughs> yeah, 19-teens nudity yeah. <laughs> on screen. <laughs> so, uh, you know, this body-bearing swimsuit, the one that she was arrested for wearing, you know, she was already way doing things that were like way past that. It's just an, yeah. it, kind of an extension of her her daring modernity as a woman. Yeah, and the fact that she had this really fit, strong, healthy body. So she's really also a woman's fitness pioneer, and she promotes health and fitness culture at a time, again, when it is still incredibly taboo for women. She really extolled the health benefits of swimming. As a child, she had rickets, and it cured her of that. So she just believed in it and promoted exercise and um, exercise for women in general throughout her entire career. So she wrote a series of books, which included her 1912, The Body Beautiful, in which she offered women her, quote, unique system of health culture and bodybuilding. And again, this is at a time when women relied on corsets and petticoats to mold their figures. So this is an incredibly innovative concept, right, April? Absolutely. Um, She wrote yet another book, too, in 1918, which is called How to Swim, And in this volume, she acknowledged the way in which society viewed women participating in physical activities, that it was basically just bunk or nonsense. She writes, quote, not only in matters of swimming, but in all forms of activity, women's natural development is seriously restricted and impaired by social customs and costumes of all sorts of prudish and puritanical ideas. All of the pseudo-moral restriction discourages physical activity, end quote. I love, I love the fact that she used the word prudish. I, I, know, I just too. love that word in general. <laughs> Not, I, I don't love prudishness. I just think it's so specific. Um, but she's also, she's, she's making the point that women's clothing, you know, and um, was a material manifestation of these very restrictive social customs. She writes, there is no more reason why you should wear those awful water overcoats, those awkward, unnecessary, lumping, quote-unquote, bathing suits, than there is that you should wear lead chains. So her solution is what she calls one-piece tights, and this extends from the shoulder to the ankle, but stripped of all these cumbersome and unnecessary additions like skirts and heavy wool, she's really bearing every inch of her toned body And Annette's bathing suit rocketed women's swimwear into a new era. But April, I think it's time we readjust that term bathing suit. Thanks to Annette, I think it's very clear we are now talking about swimming suits. Yes. And it might not surprise our listeners to hear that as Annette was becoming a fitness guru and also a celebrated sea siren of the silver screen through the 19-teens, she partnered with a ready-to-wear manufacturer to bring her own signature one-piece bathing suits to the mainstream. And they were a whopping success. And she was not alone. Here's a fun fact, April. One of the most famous swimwear brands of all time also began producing their first bathing suits around the same time as Annette. And I will give you one hint. The brand's name has also become synonymous with a man's very brief bathing suit. Oh, I know what you speak of. You got to love the confidence of a man wearing a Speedo. (laughs) Yes, you do. The Speedo brand is originally founded under the name Fortitude in 1914 by a young Scotsman, Alexander McRae, who had immigrated to Australia in 1910. And McRae began manufacturing women's hosiery, but switched to swimmer in the 1910s in response to the growing demand. But it wasn't really until around the 1920s that Speedo got its name, When the swimwear market really started to take off during this time, McRae's company emerged at the forefront of the market with its Razorback model, introduced in 1928. 
And this model fit like a second skin and it had the most minimal of coverage. So it really allowed swimmers to swim with ease and speed. And it was this model that inspired a staff member to coin the slogan, speed on in your speedos. And swimmers have been doing so ever since. Similarly, the American swimwear giant Janssen also began producing swimwear around the same time. And much like Speedo, it was not the company's original intention to make bathing suits. Janssen started out as a very small knitting company in Portland, Oregon in 1910. Um, literally, the two founders had just a few hand knitting machines in their, in their tiny shop. But shortly after um, the founding of the company, they began producing wool bathing suits for a men's rowing team in the 19-teens. And after this, the company expanded their wares and debuted their own line of bathing suits or quote-unquote swimming suits, I should say. Um, and by 1926, Janssen took ownership of that term with its slogan, quote, the suit that changed bathing to swimming, end quote. And we know that they're not the first to use this term because Annette, as we talked about, was using it as early as 1918. But Janssen was particularly keen on making this distinction between bathing and swimming because the company prided themselves on their wrinkle-free, quote-unquote, perfect fit patented swimsuits that allowed for the more active pursuit of swimming versus the more leisurely um, act of bathing. So in just a short period of time, Janssen emerged as the leading producer of swimmer in the world. At one point, the company accounted for 75% of bathing suit or swimming suit advertising in the United States. Its red-suited diving girl was an emblem for the carefree modern woman who we all know and love so well from this era. If you're big nerds who flip through fashion magazines, old fashion magazines frequently, like Cass and I, you're probably already familiar with this image. Um, and it first appeared in Vogue in 1921, and it features a slightly melancholy but very lovely young woman in a coordinated outfit. She was wearing a black knit cap, a two-piece bathing suit, and matching stockings. And, you know, you can't help but notice how much things have changed. It's like <laughs> night and day. She's wearing stockings. I know. It's, she's literally wearing a two-piece, too, in the pages of a fashion magazine. So a modern bathing suit for a modern woman. But this is not exactly the type of two-piece we might all immediately be thinking of, right? No. Um, you know, we have a little bit longer to wait um, for the midriff-bearing phase of swimwear. So this two-piece that we're discussing right now is actually a sleeveless knit tunic that extends over the hips. And beneath that, there is a pair of form-fitting shorts. So these were kind of, you know, stripped down, minimalistic bathing suits um, that were taking their cues from the styles that men had been wearing for swimming. You know, in fact, so similar are men's and women's swimwear during the 1920s that they're almost indistinguishable from each other. Um, not, not only are men and women swimming together now, they're also beginning to dress alike. So I, I just think it's interesting, Cass, to think about how just, you know, a decade previous to this, Women were covered from the neck to the toes um, and, and, and in some cases legally required to do so. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, where once bathing suits were intended to conceal the body, uh, now in the 1920s, this is the time when we start to see everything being put on display. And because of that, you quite literally now have bathing suit police on beaches in the United <laughs> States. The police were on the lookout for any violations of the new code of bathware, which became effective today, but not one arrest was made, wrote the New York Times in August of 1920 in an article about Coney Island. More than 50,000 persons spent Sunday here. Local authorities attribute the exceptionally large crowd to the conflicting stories circulated, affirming and denying that female bathers would be allowed to wear one-piece suits. Oh, and the article concludes... By a new edict of the police department, women vacationists may smoke cigarettes on the beach. <laughs> oh, oh, women. Where do we begin, April? You're, you're allowed to smoke. <laughs> you, are, you are allowed. Mm -hmm. I don't even know where to begin with that. But um, it appears a new era has dawned in a lot of different ways. So it's really in this post-World War I period that women are starting to assert their independence in ways that are literally exhibited in a more relaxed attitude towards the way that they dress their bodies. 
Um, and this is, as to be expected, um, an incredibly threatening uh, move to a, a rather fragile social order. So I think we've all seen the famous image of the Washington policeman Bill Norton on his knees measuring the space between a woman's short skirt hem and then a knee. Um, once you see this photograph, you don't forget it. Um, he, he's, he's quite literally policing her body and what she's wearing. Um, this photograph was taken in 1922. Um, and shortly after, the Washington Superintendent of Public Buildings and Grounds made it a law that a woman's bathing suit could not be higher than six inches above her knee. Yeah. So there's that. <laughs> Yikes. And that's not even, that's one of the most well-known images of these propriety police. And there were police women as well. Um, but this is not the only one to survive today. So we will absolutely be posting on Instagram more of the images from this period of women literally being arrested for their all too revealing bathing suits. There is one image in particular that is particularly upsetting to me. And it's this young woman and she's quite literally struggling. She's mid struggle against this policeman who has picked her up and is holding her against his body and trying to put her in the back of a police car. And then her friend is being pulled behind her by another policewoman. And this is in a front of a huge crowd of people. Yeah, because, you know, his action of picking up grown women as if they're children and throwing them into a car is so much more appropriate than the shortness of her swimsuit. Yeah, the hypocrisy throughout the history of fashion, uh, I think you agree with me, April, it never ceases to amaze me. And I, I think it's official. I am absolutely doing an episode on arresting fashion because this is a surprisingly common occurrence throughout fashion history, and it is unacceptable. And April, I hate to be the bathing suit police, but you actually can't use this, the term swimsuit yet because it hasn't been invented. Wait, what? Haven't we just been using swimsuit? We have. Swimming suit. Oh, I know. Okay. <laughs> The shortened swimsuit is not a term yet, and at least not according to Vogue, because you can use swimming and bathing suit, but the first mention of swimsuit in the magazine does not appear until 1930, although it does show up in women's wear daily in 1928. It appears to be a word mostly used by the manufacturing trade, though, possibly shortened for practical purposes. Okay, I get it now. I understand. Uh, <laughs> so as scandalous as women's revealing bathing suits were in the 1920s, so also were these beauty pageants that promoted them. In contrast to the developing popularity of the much abbreviated swimsuit, in these pageants, the, the suits that women were wearing, the more inventive and the more imaginative, the better. And it seems like some of these beauty contestants were actually wearing bathing suits that they themselves had created, or at least that they had embellished a bit. Yeah. And another fun fact, April, but these beauty pageants featuring women in bathing suits, which in at least in America became a huge part of our popular culture. They apparently originated as marketing ploys to get tourists to beachside resorts. So the Miss America beauty pageant, for instance, was born out of a calculated campaign to bring people to the Atlantic City boardwalk in New Jersey in the 1920s. And this was quite the affair, let me tell you. The New York Times reported that for the second year of the fall fashion frolic held at the Atlantic Boardwalk in 1921, 1,000 bathing girls were on view, quote, most of them in one-piece bathing suits and a pageant attended by 150,000 people. So the best part of this, in my opinion, was this eight miles of rolling chairs where something like 200 of these women were literally rolled down the street. So men are behind them, pushing them down the street as they model and wave to the crowd. So these one-piece bathing suits are literally a spectacle. And so much so that the New York Times wrote about them. They said, quote, for the time being, the censor ban on bare knees and skin-tight bathing suits was suspended and thousands of spectators gasped as they applauded the girls who were judged on their shapeliness and carriage as well as beauty of face, end quote. And I bet you're all wondering, well, who won? Well, that would be one 16-year-old Margaret Gorman, and she swept both categories of this quote-unquote fall fashion frolic, and she would become the very first 
Miss America. And there's a very charming picture of her um, that still exists, which we will post on Instagram. And she's adorable, to say the very least. Um, one of the things that I love about this particular picture is she, she has her hair tied up in a wrap, but the wrap matches the one uh, tied around her waist of her two-piece bathing suit. Um, and she won both the Inner City Beauty and the Most Beautiful Bathing Girl in America contest. And this earned her the Golden Mermaid Trophy, among other prizes at this particular event. And her runners-up, the women right behind her, they received their very own Annette Kellerman bathing suits. Mm -hmm. So, long story short, by the following year, um, the titles that she had won, Margaret had won, were actually changed to Miss America. And the rest, they say, you know, beauty, pageant, history. Or rather, the beginning of making a show of judging women solely on their physical appearance history. But that wasn't actually not anything <laughs> new. Um, so it would appear that the beginnings of the relationship between the bathing suit and the ideal standards of beauty, this is one of the first times where we see this connection. These two things are, are rather synonymous today, um, but, you know, Apparently, due to a 1920s marketing ploy, that's that's what we have to thank for all these modern day anxieties about how we are supposed to look and be judged when we're wearing a swimsuit. Well, not all of them, April, because the haute couture industry is going to play no small role in that development. And it's in the 1920s, after all, that those distinguished French couturiers finally sit up and take notice of the garment they have been ignoring for decades. And uh, we'll have more on that after a short sponsor break. Vogue magazine wrote in 1913, there is perhaps no one costume in the whole gamut of a woman's wardrobe that requires such discrimination of choice as a simple seeming bathing suit. And yet, oddly enough, this particular phase of the summer mode has been strangely neglected by the smart couturiers. Apart from the commonplace ready-made models, one has little choice. But that all begins to change in the 1920s when, after almost 100 years of existence, beach culture and its omnipresent bathing suit gets an upgrade with the endorsement of famed fashion designers such as Jean Patou, Sonia Delaunay, and also Elsa Scaparelli. I mean, come on. What took them so long? Why? I know. It's really interesting that they, they literally ignored it for a very long time. But I think it's a multitude of factors really one thing I find quite fascinating about the swimsuit is that before it received the endorsement of the upper echelons of fashion and society, this was really a garment by the people, for the people. People across the social strata could afford this garment, and it allowed them to participate in the very democratic act of swimming. So the bathing suit evolved into modernity throughout the teens without the help of the French couture. And this is this is new. This is interesting because the French couture is the driving force of fashion for the first, you know, for the 50 plus years prior. So for centuries, changes in fashion overwhelmingly came from the upper echelons of society, from the people who really could afford to constantly indulge in the new. But that is not the case with the bathing suit. Whereas one very popular fashion theory is that fashion trickles down from the upper classes to the low. This is an early example of it trickling up. And you mentioned this earlier, Cass, but in this post-World War I era, things have changed dramatically. That is true. Women are demanding a lot more functionality and comfort out of their wardrobes. Um, you know, their, their lifestyles, the way that they're living their lives are more active. Um, and, and this includes the affluent clientele of these high-end fashion designers in these couture houses. You know, these women were also hitting the beaches up. Um, you know, we start to see resort culture explode, particularly in France at Deauville and Baritz. Um, you know, people are, are, are going to these, flocking to these places in record numbers, and they want to do it in style. So this, this requires not only fashionable bathing suits, but entire ensembles to pair with them. Um, one of my favorite things beach pajamas. And this may be a term that a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with, but it's one of the many, many fashion trends that we can credit to the advent of chic and fashionable beach wear and resort wear in the 1920s. And 
We hope that our friends Hannah and Janine will join us on a future episode of Dressed to tell us all about beach pajamas because Cass and I both know that they've been working very hard on this topic. Absolutely. I'm excited for that. Uh, The designers you mentioned, April, Patu, Scott, Delaney, they were particularly innovative in this new market for deluxe swimwear. So they're really bringing an artistry that had really been lacking in this largely utilitarian garment up to this point. Delaney, for one, she translated the bold color theories and geometric shapes found in her artwork into these incredibly beautiful knit bathing suits. And she paired them with these stunning knit swim caps that have this gradation of color and they are exquisite. Needless to say, once the French fashion pantheon endorsed bathing culture and thus attire, it is now becoming a staple of fashion magazines moving forward. Mm. And this development um, conveniently parallels the rise of fashion photography as a very formidable alternative to fashion illustration. Um, You know, this medium of fashion illustration had served the fashion industry as the way in which information about fashion was transmitted for almost 300 years. But now at the beginning of the 20th century, it's becoming increasingly passe as fashion photographers they really kind of brought a refreshingly stark modernity and, and realness to their fashion photography that illustration could just never, you know, really quite achieve. And, and one of the ways that they were doing this was by fashion spreads um, that were frequently out of doors and frequently featuring the bathing suit. Um, you know, this utter simplicity of the bathing suit, the fact that it hugs the curves of the body, it, it really allowed for this play um, in photography at the time, which was black and white between light and darkness. It, it allowed um, for this creation of negative and positive space. And that might not have been possible in the same way with more complex garments. It's all about the silhouette. It's all about the line. Um, and this really opens up a lot of possibilities, giving photographers, you know, this opportunity to get out of the studio, out into the great out of doors, And because of this, these photographs um, by legendary photographers such as George Hornick and Hune, some of these are some of the most iconic in the history of fashion. They're very new, they're very modern, and their composition, um, but also in terms of the type of women that they are representing and the clothing that, that she's wearing. And Cass, I know that you are working on an episode about the history of fashion photography, so that will be coming up soon. Yes, stay tuned. So Vogro in 1928, we all remember the old-fashioned bathing girl as a ridiculous figure with her bunchy bloomers and her long-sleeved high-necked blouse, and we poke fun at her. We seem to forget that while the lady tennis enthusiasts were still tripping over their flowing skirts and the lady golfer found it impossible to tee up her own ball owing to the number and tightness of her garments— The bathing girl, bless her, defied society, ignored the raised lorgnettes and exclamations of horror, and came forth with her legs almost entirely exposed. It took a certain amount of courage for the bathing girl to appear in this daring costume, and she really deserves the credit for firing the first shot in the battle of modern dress. The article continues, The modern girl is triumphant. She can wear anything she wants to wear. It is by no coincidence that Hoenigan Hewn's first photograph of a bathing suit in Vogue appeared this same year. Um, and it's one of the most beautiful images of a suit designed by Jean Patou. And the model is captured at a side angle in her white bathing cap, and she's wearing a belted striped knit bathing suit. She has a pole in one hand and two exercise rings in the other. The photograph has captured her as if she's a moment of solitude and like about to go into a moment of movement. And her attire is merely an accessory for this kind of like greater moment of contemplation and beauty. And and being black and white, there's a really gradiated sky behind her. And it just completes the picture to utter perfection. Cass, this is like one of my all-time favorite photos. Yeah, it's pretty fantastic. One of my personal favorite Honingen Hune images is also of a Patu swimsuit, and it was taken the same year, and it provides a similar play and contrast between whites and blacks, lightness and shadow, and he's captured this woman swimmer just as she's about to jump into a body of water we cannot see, but she's posed in this moment of stillness. It's wonderful. 
So Richard Martin in the catalog for his 1990 exhibition, Splash, A History of Swimwear, wrote about Hoenigen Hume, quote, he endowed fashion photography with the clarity of content and aesthetic objective that we associate with painting. Are we then to consider such swimwear wanderers, the counterparts to Picasso's blue and rose period, travelers on ambiguous shores? Far from denying the 1930s swimmer her or her, his eroticism, one may extend the first impression sensuality of the swimmer by a renewed sensibility for the water as a place of art's reflection. When Vogue's first photographic cover, photographed by Edward Steichen, appeared in 1932 and featured a woman in a red bathing suit, it was clear that fashion and the bathing suit were entering a new era. They've now become intertwined in this sort of mutually obsessive relationship, and they will never part. Nope. And on that note, April, I think it's finally time to conclude this episode of Dress. We still have a lot to cover, or in the case of the bathing suit, uncover. I'm going to fine you on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Join us next week where we enter into part two of our revealing history. Part two is definitely the less is more section of this fascinating history. So check it out. Ooh la la. (laughs) Until then, may you all appreciate and love your bodies next time you put on a swim. Oh, okay. Wait, sorry. Bathing suit. Please follow us on Instagram for images that supplement each week's episode at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle, and you can find us on Facebook at Dressed Podcast without the underscore. If you'd like to email us, you can do so at dressed at howstuffworks.com. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Holly Fry and Casey Pegram, and everyone else at How Stuff Works who makes this show possible each week. Catch you here next week. Bye.